We're starting a new series of messages today entitled Defining the Church. And some of you may have seen that and go, well, this is going to be boring. How long will it take? Just look it up. Go to the dictionary. But the more I've delved into this, the more I've come to understand and come to a greater appreciation of just what the church of Jesus Christ is and how precious the church is to God. And I want us to get on that page. I want us to come to understand what it is that you and I are a part of, not simply so that we will appreciate church more, but so that we can grow more, give more, serve more, share more, and become more. And so this morning as we start, I'd like us to join our hearts in prayer and ask God if he would to begin to work in us to give us a a receptive heart and an open mind and a willingness to learn, to grow, and to become. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for meeting us here this morning, for speaking to us. We thank you for the truthfulness for the power of your word. And we thank you, Lord, for loving us not only individually, but for loving us as a church. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Is the church really all that important? When surveys are done by groups like Gallup, Gallup does surveys, it was discovered that about 40% of Americans say that they attend church on a regular basis, about 40%. When you begin to dig into those numbers a little bit, you find that that's a, a little bit on the deceptive side. People who have kind of dug down a little deeper and actually looked at attendance, not people who just said they went, but actual attendance on Sunday, have discovered that the numbers are probably closer to 20%. 20% on an average Sunday, people show up in a house of worship of some description to to worship, to pray, to fellowship, uh, to be equipped, about 20%. And so I guess I should first say to you, congratulations, you beat the odds. You're here. You're part of that 20% who have made the effort to move out of whatever your comfort zone was and to come to worship this morning. Now, to be honest, 20% is not a real encouraging number, is it? We'd like it to be reversed. 80% of the people are in the house of worship. If so, we would need to be building a lot more houses of worship. But there are some statistics that, to me, are as much, if not more, heartbreaking. And that is when you take a look, actually, at church membership roles. What we discover is that many times churches have membership roles that are twice as high as their attendance, sometimes three times or even four times as high as their attendance. For instance, a church may have on their official records, on their roll, they may have 500, 550, 600 people that are members of that church and yet On a typical Sunday, they have 150 people show up. What does that say about the importance of the church to the people who don't show? What does that say about the importance of the church to the people who do show? What does that say about the importance of the church 
to the church leaders who see these numbers and yet nothing seems to change. Well, maybe one of the things that leaders haven't done over the course of time is maybe we haven't defined the church well enough. And we haven't just done such a good job of letting people know what church is. And we've allowed instead the culture to define church. We've allowed the the non-church world to define church for us. And certainly there's a lot of evidence for that. I think Dana Carvey is a funny comedian. Dana Carvey uh, plays a lot of, of roles, but I remember distinctly Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live, which I'm sure many of you wouldn't watch, but Saturday Night played the church lady. Now, I'm not going to attempt to do an imitation. I really, I tried to get glad our student pastor to come in and put the wig on and do the church, whole church lady thing for you, uh, but we just couldn't, I think, well, quite honestly, he just enjoyed dressing up like that too much. No, just kidding. But she was a, it was a stereotype that was put out there. There, this, this uh, bigoted, uh, judgmental, uh, ditzy kind of church lady. Now, you and I probably have met a, pe- a person or two like that in a church from time to time. But let's face it, there aren't too many church lady type stereotypes. There aren't too many of those in our church. And to be quite honest, there probably aren't too many of them in other churches either. There was just enough truth to that stereotype to to make it humorous, to make it funny. But what happens is when people who are outside the church see this, this is the church lady. It begins to wire in their brains what church is and who church people are. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you watch, if you go to the movies or you watch any of this stuff on TV, if you ever see a devout Christian or a pastor or priest who's portrayed in a movie or in a television show, they're usually the bad guy or a complete fool. Have you ever noticed that? It is a rare time when you will find someone who's a devout Christian when someone who's serving in the ministry, it is a rarity that you will see that they're painted in a positive light. Again, I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional. I can't read people's minds and I don't know their hearts, but I do know this. The image that the world outside the church paints of the church itself is not a very positive image. They're defining for our culture, for our society, what church is. Now, obviously, there are some people who call themselves Christians who don't do a very good job of defining church either. You've probably seen on the news this group of hate-filled yahoos who show up at the funerals of dead servicemen and women rejoicing in those deaths, celebrating those deaths, saying this is God doing this. God hates you. Uh, they, They have the... Uh, you can't really see her T-shirt, but the T-shirt is GodHatesFags.com. This is an image that is out there. These people are from the Westboro Baptist Church. They call themselves a church. I guess they do churchy things, but they also do this. They're not our church. They're not kin to us. 
And when I look at the New Testament, I don't see a lot of this either. But what they do is they help define church for the culture. When people see this, this is their image of a Baptist church. Now, obviously, we've done a lot of shooting ourselves in the foot over time. We've got our own fair share of scandals, not as Grace Fellowship, but as church itself. You have the Jimmy Swaggerts and you have the Jim Bakers. You have the, uh, uh, the, the scandals in the Catholic Church with the priests who've taken advantage of both young boys and young girls. You've had all this, and certainly it pops up in the headlines from time to time, a prominent pastor here, a prominent pastor there, a prominent church member here, prominent church member there. What I'm saying is all these things define for people what it means to be a church. Which means you and I have our jobs cut out for us if we are going to redefine church for our culture. And sadly, we may even need to redefine it for ourselves. You see, these things aren't in a vacuum. These affect our view of church. This is why so many people say, I like Jesus, but I'm not too fond of his people. I like Jesus, but I really don't like his church. But folks, if you will go to the New Testament, what you will discover is that to God, the church is a big deal. Despite the, the inappropriate definitions, despite the, 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 the uh, distortions that are out there, despite all these things, to Jesus, the church is a big deal. And so before we even begin with defining the church and going back and looking at the Greek, and before we do all that, we're going to do that in this series. But the best place to jump off for us, the best starting point for us today will be to ask ourselves, why indeed is the church so important? Because it is. And I want to give you a few reasons. And the first reason is this. The church is important because Jesus established the church. The church is important because Jesus established the church. That's the first reason why it's so important. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Okay. Notice this. Whose church is it? Okay, it's time to wake up now. Okay. Whose church is it? So what Jesus is saying is, this is my church, and as a matter of fact, I am going to build it. Jesus established the church. That's one of the reasons why church is so important to Jesus because it's something that he has done. You see, the church is not just a human organization. Yes, we've got constitution, bylaws, we've got all those things. But the church is not just a human organization. It wasn't like after Jesus left and ascended into heaven, the disciples called a meeting together and said, what do you, what do you think we ought to do now? What, 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 what's next? And somebody in the back of the room said, we can start a church. That's not how it happened. 
Jesus, before he ever left, established the church. Began to talk about and teach about the church. The church was important. It's not a man-made thing. If it was a man-made thing, it would have fallen flat on its face. If it was a man-made thing, it wouldn't have survived. You see, during the early years of the church, Christians faced intense opposition from both the Jews and from the Roman government. There was one instance when the apostles were dragged in before the Sanhedrin, which would be kind of the supreme court of the Jewish nation. They were dragged in before the Sanhedrin. They were put on trial and they they were commanded, you stop talking about Jesus. Cut it out. We don't want to hear any more of this foolishness. Shut your mouths. Stop making trouble. Go away. Disciples said, that ain't happening. You haven't seen what we've seen. You haven't heard what we've heard. You haven't experienced what we've experienced. This is real. But there was one man among that Sanhedrin who showed wisdom. His name was Gamaliel. And this is what he said to the rest of the Sanhedrin. He said, leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, then you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. He hit the nail right on the head. The church is a God thing, not a man thing. And Jesus said, this was his promise. Gamaliel probably didn't even know this. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. My church will be victorious. So that's the first reason the church is important because Jesus established the church. The second reason that the church is important is because the the church is important because Jesus died for the church. Jesus died for the church. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.25. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. One of the greatest hurdles that we face as evangelical Christians is this tendency to privatize our relationship with Jesus. That it's me and Jesus against the world. I don't need the church. I don't need the relationships. I don't need to be connected to the body. Did you hear what Carrie read this morning? The eye, she said, can't, it can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. I mean, how many of you got up out of bed this morning and you just said, hey, the rest of you body parts can just stay. I'm going to church. The rest of y'all just kind of hang out here. I'll be back later. Did you not need all those pieces? Were not all those pieces important? Absolutely. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Every part of the body is vitally important to the functioning of the body. Did you notice what Paul said? He did not say, even though it's true, he did not say that Jesus died for each one of you. No, what did he say? He gave himself up for the church. 
So there's something bigger here, something grander here than just me and Jesus against the world. He gave himself up for the church. How important must the church be if Jesus is willing to give himself up for the church? And attached to that question is this one. Do we have the same high regard for the church that Jesus gave himself for? Or is it a take it or leave it kind of thing? One of the things that uh, I picked on Glad about the, the wig and the dress thing, he really didn't even try that. Uh, it just wouldn't work with that beard. It just kind of threw everything off. But one of the things Glad tells when we get together and we talk about some of the, the struggles that take place in trying to build up a, a, a student ministry is that students have so many options now, so many things that they can do. Teenagers have so many options, and they will be excited about a trip or an opportunity that's coming up. And, uh, you know, basically everybody says, okay, we'll be there. And then the day comes up and about half of them don't show for whatever reason it is. And Glad says this, and I agree with it wholeheartedly. Glad says that teenagers' commitment is this. I'll be there unless something better comes along. And sadly, that's how many of us approach church. I'll be a part of it unless something better comes along. Unless I had a kind of a rough night sleeping last night, I'll be there with you guys. Unless, you know, I wake up and it's too cold outside, I'll be there. Unless I wake up and it's drizzling, I'll be there. Unless I wake up and, you know, I got a few aches and pains, I'll be there. It's a take it or leave it kind of thing. But that's not the attitude Jesus had towards church. I'm not trying to make you feel bad or guilty or anything like that. I'm trying to tell you how important the church is to Jesus. It's important enough that he gave himself up for the church. The third reason is this. The church is important because Jesus is burdened for the church. This is really, really neat. In, in looking at, well, let me, let me back it up. The, John the Apostle was among the 12. And from the 12 apostles, there were three, Peter, James, and John, who were closest to Jesus. They were kind of the inner circle of Jesus. But it says something special of John that it doesn't say of Peter and James. It calls him disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't love the rest of them. It's just that John and Jesus, they were buds. And I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm actually belittling that relationship. They were close. Have you ever had someone in, that, in your life like that, that you were so close to that person, and you loved other people, but there was a special, unique kind of deep brotherly affection, sisterly affection that you had towards someone else. That's what John and Jesus had going on here. John was special in Jesus' life, so much so that at Jesus' crucifixion, everybody else had run off. But who do we find there at the cross? There's John. And Jesus from the cross looks at John and says, John, take care, take care of my mom. 
I'm giving you the responsibility to take care of my mom. That's a big deal. When the disciples heard that the tomb was empty, Peter and John race to the tomb to get there. Now, scholars think that John was a little older than Peter because Peter got there first. You know how Peter is. He's always, you know, he was the guy. He, he was ready. He was uh, ready and bam. He was, just, he was ready to fire. He was gone. Well, he got there first, but it's, he didn't go in the tomb first. He got to the tomb and he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. What am I doing? You know, it finally dawned on him. I'm getting ready to run into a grave here. Maybe I better not do that. But John finally caught it with him, ran him on by. He was the first person to see, the first of those apostles to see that Jesus wasn't there at all. See the grave clothes. Jesus was gone. Very special place in the life of Jesus. John was one of the great leaders of the church in fact, the, in the book of Revelation, the seven letters that Jesus wrote to those seven churches, those were the churches in Asia Minor. John, the apostle, was the apostle over those churches. He was kind of the, the bishop, the head guy who oversaw all those seven churches. He was kind of the super pastor over those churches, had a heart for those churches. It says that during, uh, church history says that during the persecution of Domitian, when John would have been in his 90s, during the persecution of Domitian, that John was actually arrested and they attempted to kill him by burning him in oil, putting him in a pot of boiling oil to kill him. John's 90-some years old. They stick any 90-year-old in here in a pot of oil. You know, they just got, well, it ain't going to be pretty. John survived. Now, I don't know whether, and the Bible doesn't tell us whether uh, um, it's debated whether he came out scarred from it or whether he came out perfectly whole like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did out of the fiery furnace. We don't really know, but John survived that. You can see John went through a lot. And after he survived all that, you would think they would go, well, obviously, obviously you, you must be innocent before God. We're letting you go. No. They, they, then they sent him into exile onto this volcanic island called Patmos. And so here John is, maybe 95, 96 years old, having undergone all this, now separated from the churches. He can't even... You know, he's, not, he's the pastor over these churches, and, and he's not able to be there with the people. And, and guess what happens? John's there on that island, and Jesus shows up. Now, here's what you would think. You would think, had that happened, that, that Jesus would come in, and he would show up, and he goes, John, man, let me just tell you how proud I am of you. You stood strong. You kept the faith. You didn't yield, and I just want to let you know I'm here for you. You think that's what would happen after all that John went through for Jesus, that Jesus would show up and say, okay, John, I'm here to comfort you now. But that wasn't Jesus' priority. Here's here's what Jesus said when he showed up. Look look, look at this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom... 
in, in, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that arises in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And in other words, I was worshiping on Sunday. In the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, and this is Jesus, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the churches. He didn't come in and say, oh, John, John, man, I'm just here for you. He said, John, I'm not finished with you yet. Yeah, you've been through a lot. And you're, I, I know you got your AARP card a long, long time ago. But I'm not finished with you yet. You know those churches you love so much? I love those churches too. And I've got a message I want to send to those churches through you. How powerful is that? Jesus is burdened for his church. When Jesus looks at his church, he looks at us as a universal church, but he also looks at us as these individual congregations. And he knows precisely the things that we struggle with. And he is burdened for his church. That's Jesus' priority. The next reason is this. The church is important because Jesus identifies himself with the church. Jesus identifies himself with the church. Now, this, this was really cool when I read this again with a new set of eyes. The passage is in, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still... Saul, who became the apostle Paul, Saul was a persecutor of the church here. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there, any disciples there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul answered. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, wait a second. I thought Saul was persecuting the church. Saul never even ran into Jesus till till right here. What is up with this? He did not come and say, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting? persecuting me. Do you see the identification here that Jesus has with his church? So it makes sense when Paul later writes that the church is the body of Christ. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because he had an encounter with Jesus where Jesus said, "You are perse- when you persecute the church, you are persecuting me. One of the verses that we talk about when we talk about compassion and helping other people, one of the verses we go to is where Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to one, or, excuse me, if you do to one of, as you do to one of the, the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. Now, when he says my brothers, he's, he's, he's making the scope smaller. 
He's just not saying, listen, as you go out in the world and you're helping this person, that person, that person, that person, that you're doing that to me. He says, no, when you do it to one of the least of my brothers, my sisters, those who are mine, then you're doing it to me. Because why? Because Jesus identifies himself with the church. They are not separable. They're inseparable. Is that the way we think of the church? Do we think of the church being so identified with Jesus that when we are part of a church, we're part of Jesus? One of the things that when we go through our Begin with Grace class, one of the things that we tell people is when they're making a a commitment to join Grace Fellowship or any other church, first and foremost, they're making a commitment to Jesus Christ. Why? Because this is his church. This is his body. So when you make a commitment to the church, you're making a commitment to Jesus, which is what breaks my heart. When I see the number of people who say, I'm a Christian, but I have no use for the church. We can blame the church for all kinds of mistakes and mishaps and stumbling and fumbling and bumbling all we want to, but I'm telling you that a person who says, I am a Christian, but I have no need for the church, does not understand what the church is, nor do they understand who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am am the body you are the body of christ we together are the body i'm the head you're the body one final reason why the church is important and i'm sure there's tons of others we could mention and it is this the church is important because she is the hope of the world and the reason i use the term she the pronoun she is because the church is called the bride of christ The church is the hope of the world. You go, Pastor, don't you think you're overstating the case just a little bit? Church is the hope of the world? I don't think I'm overstating the case at all. I've got some pretty good backup. Now, ultimately, we know Jesus is the hope of the world. But this is what Jesus shared with those who were his in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, the Paul who came to understand that, that Jesus said, anytime you know, that it, if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me, this is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God who reconciled himself, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling, bringing together the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Who is the us? The church. Jesus came to reconcile, to bring together on the cross, to bring fallen man and holy God together to reconcile what was broken. And Jesus gives now to us that ministry. We are the hope of the world. A verse that some of you memorized a long time ago, and some of you may need to memorize now, is found in Matthew 28, and it says this, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And he goes on to say, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Why am I with you? Because I'm the head and you're the body. I'm the head, you're the body. Of course I'll be with you. I, um, it was sad to watch all the wranglings that took place in Washington this weekend. And I won't be political and pick a party and pick a stance here, but I just want to tell you this. If you think the government is the hope of the world, take a look at last week. Look at that. They're the hope of the world? No, I don't think so. Do we think Campus Crusade for Christ, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, do we think that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, do we think that Atlas Ministries, do we think that's the hope of the world? No. Jesus didn't give that to them. There are places for parachurch organizations that work in support of the work of the church, but typically their scope is limited. Campus Crusade for Christ, their mission is to win students to Jesus Christ. What is the church's mission? To win as many as possible to Jesus Christ of every group. We are the hope of the world. And so as we close this, I want to I just give you uh, some, some criteria for what, what is a church that's going to be the hope of the world? What does that kind of church look like? And I'll do it very, very quickly. What type of church is truly the hope of the world? First, is a church that acknowledges Jesus as Savior. Without that, folks, we've got nothing. We could feed every hungry person, clothe every unclothed person, and put every homeless person in a house, and we would not be doing what we were instructed to do by Jesus. I'm not saying those things are bad. We ought to do those things. But if we don't do that, if, if we do that apart from recognizing Jesus as Savior, we have blown it. Secondly, it's a church which follows Jesus as Lord. We declare Him as Savior to ourselves and to the world, but we follow Him as Lord. He is the one who has the right to tell me which way to go with my life, to lead me in my life. Third is the church that's burdened for the lost. And I'm just going to ask you a simple question here, and again, it's not made to make you feel guilty, it's, made, it's, it's given to make you think. When it comes to your personal prayer time, how much time do you spend praying for those who are sick or hurting, and how much time do you pray for those who are lost, dying, and going to hell apart from Jesus Christ? I heard one pastor say, we pray a lot more keeping people out of heaven than we pray trying to get people into heaven. Just think about the burden for the lost, that Jesus would come in and look at Jerusalem and weep because he saw that the people were helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. How many times have you driven into Greensboro? Have you driven out to the lake? Have you driven into your neighborhood and wept for the lostness all around you. 
church that's the hope of the world is also a church that's discipling young believers. And when I say young believers, I'm not necessarily talking about teenagers. I'm talking about anybody who has been birthed into the kingdom and is growing on their faith. We need to be about coming alongside people who need to know what it means to walk with Jesus. Some of you know, some of you walk with Jesus, and some of you, quite frankly, need to make, take the initiative to go find somebody who's younger in the faith and say, listen, do you mind if I pray for you and communicate with you on a regular basis and maybe even get together with you and study God's Word together? I would like to share with you some of what I have received over the years. I think we have spent enough time in passive Christianity waiting for somebody to come and fetch us and say, come do this. When we stand before God, let me just be completely honest. When we stand before God, I don't think that's going to be a very good excuse that no one ever asked me to do it. And a church that's the hope of the world is a church that will do whatever it takes to bring glory to God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes. We live in a consumer-minded culture which has made consumer-minded Christians. People go away from church services and go, well, I didn't get much out of that. I wasn't fed. Now, certainly the church has a responsibility to provide feeding, spiritual nourishment. But you are not a bunch of little baby birds in a nest squawking at mama to give, her, to give them some chewed up worm. Paul said, listen, by now you ought to be eating meat, but you're still on the bottle. For some of us, it's time to grow up. For some of us, it's time to take responsibility for our own spiritual growth. But it begins... By loving God's church. Connecting with God's church. Committing to be a part of God's church. I hope that this morning we've come to understand at least a little bit just how important that is to Jesus.